Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Today, I'm joined by Anna Goel, who is, of course, our managing editor, and by Jen Cates. And uh, Jen, I don't think you need an introduction to this group. If you work in global health, you certainly know who Jen is. Uh, but for those maybe who don't, Jen is the director of global health and HIV policy at KFF. Jen, you guys still go by KFF. I think a lot of people know you as the Kaiser Family Foundation, but I think you are formally KFF these days, right? Yes. Hi, everyone. We are formally KFF. So thank you for letting me make that announcement here. Okay, good. Good to hear. And yeah, you're a senior vice president there. And I mean, you wear so many, so many hats. Uh, so it's great to have you. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, uh, you know, let me, let me start with Anna. We, we've got a whole bunch of stories that we could get into, but two that come to mind in particular uh, relate to localization. And of course, localization is, I don't know, the bingo word of this show. We talk about it just about every week. Um, <laughs> and uh, we had an interesting piece uh, just a couple of days ago about a new report showing that USAID is now up to 10% by their definition of their aid is localized. Um, and maybe, maybe just say a word about that, Anna. Yeah, sure. So I was just talking about this with my, um, our colleague, David Ainsworth. So uh, he really kind of crunches the numbers and he pointed out this is both the single largest cash increase and probably the biggest percentage increase in at least a decade or so. Um, so it is an improvement. It's not the 25% benchmark that Samantha Power has set. But there are good things to take away from the report. Um, at the same time, there are reasons to be skeptical. A lot of this increase was driven more by PEPFAR than USAID. Um, but then again, you know, PEPFAR is very advanced in terms of localization. And if they did it at some point, then USAID could certainly do it at some point. Yeah, I, but there's there's a lot of questions. I, yeah. I'd love to get Jen's take on that because you know PEPFAR so well, Jen. What is it about PEPFAR that has made them so successful in localizing their funding flows in a way that maybe hasn't happened for other USAID programs? Yeah, thanks. It's it's a great question, and I the report is so interesting, showing um, really how health is the leader in in terms of the sectors, and that as you mentioned is PEPFAR. You know, a few things. Uh, first of all, PEPFAR made a very concerted and focused decision several years ago to move towards localization. And, and just the backdrop here, you might remember, this wasn't just coming from PEPFAR at the time. Uh, USAID was talking about localization. This is before Administrator Power was there. But PEPFAR, um, under Ambassador Bur Burks, really took this on and said, we are making a commitment to do that. So that, that was when they had a strong commitment. PEPFAR is also, um, you know, much more centrally, um, uh, you know, driven, um, and and PEPFAR has such a big footprint that I think having that sort of mandate come from the office of the global AIDS coordinator, go down to the mission level and really sort of permeate through the PEPFAR program. It was in the guidance that countries get, and and over time, PEPFAR has even said we're going to hold you to this. And if we don't meet these standards, there could be some financial consequences. So I think it was, you know, a combination of focus, 
mandate and the centrally driven nature of PEPFAR, which is ironic because we're talking about localization, but PEPFAR in many realms has been able to drive change relatively quickly. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how much of the overlap between the individual countries where USAID is doing a really good job on localization, uh, you know, how much of that is because they're big PEPFAR countries like South Africa. Um, and, you know, I was looking at the report and it does seem like the localization efforts that are succeeding are highly concentrated and maybe gets to your point about leadership and centralized authority. You know, maybe it's just certain USAID missions and their mission directors have made this a priority and pushed it through, which, if that's true, gives maybe hope to those missions that haven't done it yet, that they could. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's proof of concept, right? This is really hard to do. It's hard to move a huge bureaucratic ship and the way that business has been done by the U.S. government and its development programs for you know decades to change that in a fundamental way is a major undertaking. But this just shows it can be done. And um, and you know the other thing is PEPFAR is the bulk of uh, the development programs in some of these countries. So if it is able to do it, is is going to drive. That's why you're probably seeing that in South Africa and some of the other places. But yes, I think the bottom line is it can be done. Um, we're not talking about how well it's being done, and, and that's maybe a different question. But I think it, it does show that you can make those changes um, that have a real impact. Right. The report talks about this this other target, the secondary target, that still remains somewhat undefined. There's a little more meat on the bone, but the idea that that half of USAID spending should really be localized in a deeper way. Um, and, you know, they talked a bit more about what that actually but there isn't really a, a clear metric for it yet. And uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about on this, on this report, but it just seems to me that there's real progress. There's a lot to be proud of, but I, I start looking at things like, you know, a target that says they're going to start measuring the second target at the end of 2023. And I start thinking about things like election cycles and presidential terms and, and, you know, how many of these things are actually going to be able to stick. It's always a challenge. Yeah, to me, what really stands out is the loopholes in terms of the definitions. Um, you know, the 25% target is actually pretty misleading um, because it's only it only really winds up being a percentage of eligible expenditure. And only half of the cash is really going to local organizations, according to some analysts. The other half is going to the local arms of the big players. So you know, will lo how local is being defined. It is defined in this report, but there's still a lot of holes in it. And you could have basically the usual suspects just set up local uh, organizations on their own and not much fundamentally changes. And, and to me, what's fascinating is many of the quote unquote usual suspects, right? A lot of thinking about big international NGOs, members of groups like MFAN, you know, a lot of them are arguing in a way against their financial interests because they don't want these loopholes. Um, you know, they really want the money to go to actually local organizations, but I think it's really tough for USAID to exclude some of the most experienced and capable groups in the world that happen to have a local operation that might be fully staffed by people from that country. Jen, I wonder what your take is on, on how this is all going to ultimately shake out in terms of the, the implementer community. 
Yeah. So I was, I was thinking that when you originally asked the question, because that, you know, when I said it's really hard to change the way business is done, it's not just hard from the perspective of the USG. There's a whole network of implementers that have been in this for the long haul. And for a whole range of reasons, they don't want to stop doing what they're doing. Um, some of them, you know, part of it is expertise. Um, part of it is business and it's, it's, it's an industry. And, um, that's a, a real, heavy lift there. And then actually another sort of historical piece about PEPFAR is PEPFAR actually did this early on when PEPFAR was first created. It had what was called track one implementers, which were largely, you know, US-based universities. And it made a concerted effort by the second phase to move away from them. And it was painful. Um, I think, you know, one of the cautions here, putting aside whether it's a business interest or other, one of the cautions here that some of the implementers I think are, are you know, rightly pointing to is, you can't necessarily make these tr these transitions at the risk of health or other development outcomes, right? You you know the the point of this isn't to necessarily de destabilize the programs that you you put so much investment in that could adversely affect populations that benefit on them, and that's a delicate balance. So there's a lot going on in this space. Yeah, we had a, another story this week, which was really an in depth look at the internal you know, dis dispute, I guess you could say, within an organization called Pathfinder International, one of the world's leading uh, family planning, reproductive rights organizations, global health organizations. And it's interesting because the, the backdrop to what otherwise might have just been a normal debate inside an institution about hiring and firing and the leadership of the CEO. In this case, the backdrop is localization, where the organization is saying, look, we we really needed to fire a lot of people in the U.S. in order to move positions and authority and budget to our Global South offices and really change this organization in an era of localization. It's a fascinating piece, and I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Yeah, I think what's fascinating partly is that the problems are very unique to Pathfinder, but at the same time, as you said, especially when it comes to localization, um, there's so many organizations that can relate to it. It involves a lot of painful layoffs. Um, another added element, though, is kind of these accusations flying around that this is really a power grab of the CEO. Um, but there's this added, added complication of Pathfinder has a history of being... Um, founded as, as part of the eugenics movement. So now you have this kind of racist colonial colonialist legacy. And today they're working to try and figure out how to deal with it, how to recognize it. And that's caused a very public split with the CEO and the grandson of the organization's founder. So, and again, not unique. You've got, for instance, a lot of philanthropic organizations that also have ties to the eugenics movement. So I think it's it's a really fascinating story. I don't want to summarize it because it's 5,000 words, but um, there's a lot in there that people can relate to. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, in some ways, and it's natural, we here in Washington, D.C. especially maybe, uh, get into the technical debate around things like localization. We even, you know, come up with terms like localization that don't mean much to people outside of our realm. But in the end, these things are all connected to the history of, you know, colonialism and imperialism and racism and, and kind of the systems and structures we've built that we're trying to unwind. And so you can get technical, but as that story does, it's sometimes worthwhile to step back and look at the, the backdrop to why we're even having these debates and why we are here. Yeah. So first of all, that is a 
that story is jam packed and there's a lot in there. It's very, it's, it's not just that it's 5,000 words that cover, it just really takes on some very challenging topics. And, and I do think it speaks to some more, um, so these broad issues that we're, we're reckoning with in the United States and around the world that just come through um, for this organization, but they're not about this organization only. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's really worth just thinking about the challenges that we find ourselves in. I mean, think about the whole development enterprise started by uh, the U.S. government when USAID was formed and other development agencies around the world. They weren't created with altruistic, uh, you know, goals in mind. And so this is a complex area um, that, that you know, I guess more power to Pathfinder for trying to take some of this on. Um, and it's just, you know, watching that space, I think, is, is going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. WHO says the end of the COVID-19 pandemic is in sight. But with waves of infection still expected in the near future, how are health systems going to cope? What's going to happen to initiatives that were formed during the pandemic, like COVAX? And how is the world preparing for the next global health emergency? I'm Janelle Ravelo, Senior Global Health Reporter for DevEx. And every Thursday, we bring you answers to these questions and other exclusive news and insights on everything global health in our free weekly newsletter, DevEx Checkup. Visit devex.com slash newsletters to subscribe. You know, the other big story as we're thinking about localization here in the U.S. is what has happened to, you know, one of the institutions that was really known for maybe leading the pack here, and that's the, the British aid agency, formerly DFID, now FCDO. And we've had, you know, a couple of pieces this week, including one today that is just, I mean, it's just kind of mind-blowing. You know, the, the big story over there in the U.K. is, of course, they had this 0.7% of gross national income target that they were meeting. You know, it was really an unusual thing for such a big economy. And now they've had a lot of aid cuts. They're down to 0.5%. But even worse, a very large portion of their aid budget is now going to the cost of housing refugees inside their borders. And the story that we broke today, Rob Merrick, our colleague in London, broke is that, you know, a big percentage of that money is actually going for taxes that go right back to the British government. And I, I wonder if you want to pick up on this. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, really, when you think about it, because it's it's really just as I wrote in Newswire today, kind of adds insult to, to injury for um, critics of, of these UK aid cuts that have been pretty steady over the last two years. So you're you know, you're you're taxing essentially the development wing of your government. And, you know, th there have been, I, I don't want to say excuses, but reasons from the government that they're, for instance, can't quite separate the, the taxes from the overall bill, for, for instance. But really, there haven't been any clear answers as to, you know, what amounts to tens of millions of, of pounds per month, I believe, um, this is a lot going from a budget that has already been, you know, some people say cut to the bone. And again, this is also already coming on top of the debate that you're counting in-house domestic costs as foreign aid. So it's it's a bit of a mess. Jen, we're so used to thinking of the UK as, as a leader on these issues, particularly global health. I wonder what your view is of how things have shifted there in the last couple of years. Yeah, well, this this has been a longer, you know, several years now. The UK sort of 
5.7 target has been really called into question. And there's been, you know, back and forth every, every year with advocates there really pushing harder on the government to, to do more, not pull back. And, um, and I think it's, it's, it's not been an optimistic scenario. And this, I haven't read the story. I just saw the headline when it came through. But if that is, you know, what I do know is that this issue of in-country refugee costs has been um, coming up again and again every year as a pre, you know, count, does it count as ODA? How do you, how do you, how does it crowd out other needs? And it's, it's creating some real challenges. And the bottom line is most donor governments are treating this all as a zero sum game. And, you know, advocates push back on that, but that's, that's where we are. And it doesn't really give much confidence that there's going to be, um, you know, increasing support for the uh, development sector in, in any kind of significant way, especially when the, when the second largest or in some cases third largest donor, the UK is not, is not going forward with, you know, more, more support. Well, when you see the piece, Jen, you'll see this eye popping statistic that's mentioned here. I had to read it twice just to make sure I had it right. It says that in 2022, the government spent 3.7 billion pounds on ODA, technically foreign aid, for covering the hotel bills of refugees staying inside the United Kingdom. And that that amount was nearly twice the bilateral aid to Africa and Asia combined. So, you know, it's now... 29% 29% of the total ODA budget is going to these costs of in-country refugees. And of course, that's an important thing that refugees need to be supported and, and housed properly when they're in a place like the UK. But the fact that that's coming so directly from the budget that's meant to avoid the very problems that deal with the refugees in the first place is pretty shocking. And uh, obviously, this story and uh, this, this broader topic is uh, sparking a lot of debate in the UK and and, and broadly within our community. Um, let's see, we've had a whole bunch of other stories this week. Anna, anything else come to mind for you that you wanted to share? Sure, yeah, we've had um, two stories on philanthropy and AI. Um, we talked to the new person who kind of heads up. He has a really cool uh, title. I think it's uh, Head of Technology Diffusion. Um, but basically kind of talking about how Philanthropy as a sector has been slow to adopt AI and these efforts to really pick up the pace, if you will, but not just pick up the pace, but how to do so um, with equity and with ethics in at top of mind. And this is something a lot of the organizations are really grappling with because you've got access issues, but not just access in low to middle income countries, but how do you get low to middle income countries to also be co-creators and help shape this movement, not just have access to it. So there's a lot of different layers to it. And I thought that was a really interesting take by um, our colleague, Stephanie Beasley. Yeah, I, I wonder whether AI could help to level the playing field, you know, back to our kind of discussion about the, the structural inequalities in our system. And one of those is, of course, the top-down nature of philanthropy and all the power and control that philanthropies have. And you know, now with these natural language tools, the ability for anyone in their, in their own language to, to access this kind of tremendous computing power, you wonder if it could start to level the playing field a little bit. Um, and maybe we get the power dynamic to shift a little bit if we can get local organizations, civil society groups to have access to these kinds of tools. Um, who knows? It may really change the way, the way we work and how some of these power dynamics are structured. Jen, are you seeing this in your own work? 
at KFF or in uh, the work of any of your partners? I mean, we're, we're like everybody else, we're, we're thinking about this, we're looking at this, and, and I'm definitely seeing it around. And, you know, at the Gates Foundation, I think uh, it's, it's really interesting that they've just taken this on, I think, from the start of, of the conversation, talking about equity, because we know from history that whenever there's a new innovation, um, equity is not top of mind for most players, governments or philanthropy or others. And uh, there's a diffusion lag, whether it's a new medication, whether it's a COVID vaccine, whether it's a technology, those who um, potentially could benefit at least as much and sometimes more get left behind. So I think the idea here is if we, if we incorporate that, that recognition upfront, we can at least um, hopefully mitigate as much of that diffusion lag as possible because the real pro there is a real promise here. There are risks all around, but there's real promise here. So uh, I do think that, um, and maybe health can be a leader in this, this way too. I mean, the health sector, uh, because so much of the benefit could be in the health sector, there's also, and equity is, is really a part of this conversation that we have in, in health. Um, maybe it can change this, this rollout. Um, we check. We should check back in a year and see where we are on that. I mean, well, just a little over a year ago, I interviewed Vinod Kosla, who's of course a famous uh, venture capitalist, um, and he said, you know, hey, we're going to be using AI to diagnose uh, patients, in, even in the lowest income settings and in places where there aren't enough trained medical personnel. And when you hear his vision, you think, okay, maybe one day, very far off in the future. That was just I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, and. Now you look at how quickly this has advanced. A year from now, you never know, we might be there. Um, I think of the mobile phone revolution and how much more impactful that was in the lowest income parts of the world. You know, it was a huge innovation, so important for every part of the world, but it was used in health and education and for payments and for farmers in truly transformative ways. It is being used still um, in many of the lowest, lowest resource settings in the world. Maybe AI could be like that too, but as our story says, you kind of have to get ahead of that curve. You have to have these discussions now and not just wait to see how the technology develops on its own. Yeah. And I, I was just having a talk last night with someone at a dinner and, you know, she, she said there, there won't be a white collar job in the U S that will not be affected by AI. And it was just an interesting point because I said, you know, there's lots of white collar jobs in the developing world in low and middle income countries as well. So you've got that effect. And then of course, more of the blue collar jobs will further add on to, to automation and, and so forth. So um, it's about as double edged of a sword, I think, as you can get. That's an understatement. <laughs> and then there's all the, you know, the privacy concerns and all of that. So it's, it's going to be, a tr it's tricky, but we're, it's here. I think that's the, for me, it's, it's here already. And we have to, this, these, this is the way to approach it. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I know we're getting close on time here, but maybe I just mentioned since we talked about the UK story around the value added tax, uh, two other pieces of news that, that were out this week related to UK. Uh, one is the appointment of Nick Dyer, uh, who, you know, is pretty widely known in this, in this space. He used to be, um, you know, the former acting head of DFID. Uh, well, Andrew Mitchell, who's the UK development minister, has brought him back in as the second permanent undersecretary. And, you know, they made it very clear this is not, uh, you know, dividing up FCDO back to the way it was done in the past. But but there is some sense of hope that at least you've got an old hand from DFID who's in this slot and can maybe help bring back some of what made DFID so 
so well regarded in the development space. So that's an interesting piece of news that was just reported this week. Um, and then there was some some other reporting that we did about um, the British international investment. And again, Andrew Mitchell standing up for the UK's um, you know private investment arm, saying you know yes, there may there may be some accusations of overspending and using tax havens, uh, but but really we don't want any political interference in this in this agency. Um, so a little bit more news in, in the UK. It's been a busy week there. Yeah, most definitely. And we have some other stories coming up, but they they all come with the the caveat that that DFID will not necessarily return or be restored to its original um, state. So, and the, even the appointment of Nick Dyer. So, you know, he's not going to be the FCDO boss, uh, but certainly a senior official. So maybe that's the journalist in me always adding the caveats. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, certainly a lot of movement on that front. Thanks to our reporter, Rob Merrick. Any other stories that come to mind for you, Anna, that you want to share? Yeah, there was one we had on India and it's a very big renewable energy push. Um, And, you know, the government set a pretty ambitious target. I think it's uh, like 500 gigawatts. Uh, It's about half their energy needs by 2030. Um, But this is taking away uh, agricultural land and this is causing uh, protests and real issues on the ground. And it's about how do you balance the need for renewable energy with the need for food. Um, and I think this is something that you're going to see play out. And I think you're going to, you're already seeing it play out with, you know, wind farms and, and taking over land, including indigenous land. I know that was an issue in Norway. So I think this is also one of those stories where it has a lot of um, universal resonance, if you will. Yeah, it certainly does. And you know, it makes me think of Ajay Banga, who was in Peru this week uh, with Ilan Goldfan, the, the president and also a relatively new president of the Inter-American Development Bank. And so much of what, you know, Banga's just started tenure at the World Bank is going to be about is shifting the focus to, to not only development, but to also include climate. And there's going to be some tension there. Um, it's not such an obvious thing, even though he says, and many others agree that, you know, climate and development are so tightly linked and climate and health, Jen, are so tightly linked. But nonetheless, there are cases where there is a tension, and that's one of the reasons a lot of the borrower countries, a lot of developing countries are a little concerned that a focus on climate mitigation could in some ways end up costing them in terms of the development impacts they want to see. Yeah, no, I thought this was a really uh, good story. I, I was glad to see it because I think it just it just illustrates this challenge. So so in such a relatable way, you can read this story and say, aha, that's exactly what people said or are warning about. And, and it's, it's not just, you know, at the, what the point was made in the article that the, the agricultural sector was needed for, you know, it's the food security challenge. There's also the livelihoods issue for this community, and it's just very complicated and fraught. Um, and the, the article also goes on, I think, to talk about solutions, and there are some solutions that could be explored. But it's, I think it's just, it's the example to pull out when, when someone says, well, what's, what's the conflict here? Yeah, exactly right. And, and if you're interested in that story, it's part of a series we're doing called Food Secured, which basically talks about how do you secure food in this fragile in this fragile world that we live in, and there's a lot more like it. So um, have a look at that if you're interested. It's been great to catch up with both of you, Jen and Anna, and to, to review some of the stories that we published this week. As usual, a busy week in, in global development in our world. So thank you for, for taking some time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. Great talking. Thanks for letting me be here. 
This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.